Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a special end-of-year edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by The Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Regular listeners will know that I introduce my colleague Thea with an ever-increasingly baroque set of epithets, generally for no reason. So, as this is the compilation edition of the show, I've been back over the last year to find my five favourite ways of describing you, Thea. Are you ready? Almost certainly not. I'll take that as a yes. (laughs) Foreign cheese lover and recuperating tuberculotic invalid. That seems quite representative of many of, of them me today. To be honest, yes, and you're 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 wearing a full length black <laughs> fur coat. It's L- not fur; it's alpaca. Alpaca. That Nothing sounds like fur. Oh, can you? What do you do? You shave an alpaca? <laughs> I don't. No. Yeah. Someone has done. It's very Game of Thrones. Someone goes and gathers gathers fluff and okay. sticks it together. Stop distracting me from the list. <laughs> that was one. Two, impar- apparently infallible, ineluctable northerner. Irre- I don't know about that one. No. Irrepressibly flat-voweled. That's true. Pronunciation maven like a less gouty Samuel Johnson. I wonder how the two come together. I, I think we can't look for coherence here. And then the TLS's <laughs> answer to William the Conqueror's companion, Robert of Moulin, who became a great feudal landlord in the second half of the 11th century. Well, I think almost certainly in this coach. You actually do? Yeah, it's Game of... That's what I think, Game of Thrones. <laughs> I reckon Robert of Moulin... He would have worn something like that. Uh, so we seem to be concentrating on your northernness, your pronunciation capabilities, your cheese loving. My ever more extreme search for warmth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which you do need. We'll see what the new year brings anyway. Uh, if you are looking for a new year's resolution, you could do worse than subscribe to the very lovely TLS. Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. And at the very least, you can review us on iTunes. So what Thea and I are going to do today is this. You know when you watch an episode of The Simpsons and they haven't bothered to write a full storyline and instead they simply use a framing device to cobble together a best-of montage from the preceding season? Well, we're doing that. Thea and I, together with our producer Matt, have selected four interviews we have done over the year for you to enjoy for the first time or again. And here they are in the order you will hear them. Sadir Hazarasingh came on back in March ahead of the French election to share his thoughts on Emmanuel Macron. 
Charlotte Shane joined us to share her thoughts on some problems with feminism, especially in book form. And in this year of Me Too, Weinstein and so many scandals, her words on the need for responsible, serious literature on the subject seem prescient. The wonderful Clive Stafford-Smith, liberal lawyer and campaigner against the death penalty and for the rights of prisoners. He tells us about the almost blatant programme of state-sanctioned murder that goes on around the world. And finally, and more happily, 2017 was the year of the bicentennial of the death of Jane Austen. We invited in the brilliant Austen expert Claire Harmon for a game of Rank Your Favourite Austen Books. And the item ended, as this show will end, with the discovery of a weird childhood memory from Thea involving a dog in period costume. What do you remember about these four? Let's go through the four that people are going to be listening to. Sadir Hazarasingh, this is before the French election. Yeah, I think it was two weeks before the first round. That's and right. it was interesting in that respect because it was quite prophetic, really. He's um, very clever. He's a very clever man. Sadir. He's a very clever man. And so we, it was pegged to his book because we were the first paper, uh, non-French paper. I still to, think, possibly even the only review, one still, yeah. still. Still the only paper then to have reviewed his book, um, La Révolution, I think it was called, originally, yeah, original title. Um, I wonder what he was on about. Yeah. Um, and uh, so Sadir was on to show how in that book Macron sets himself in this Republican tradition. Yeah. And then two weeks later, he, I think he got, what was it, 24% to Marine Le Pen's 21%, so very, very close in that first yeah. round. And then the second round, it was his landslide victory of 66%. And we're going to have to have Sadir on next year to see... What Macron's made of it. Yeah, have an update. We do need that. Uh, Charlotte Shane is the next one, the third one you'll listen to. And this is also oddly prescient in the sense of it was, she was talking, and he's talking, does talk about the the value of feminist writing, but really saying there's an awful lot of populist bloggy guff out there and the world is seriously in need of serious writing. And of course, what's happened since that, which I think was in the early autumn, all the scandals really have proved her point, haven't they? Mm. Absolutely. And I think her point was that it had been everything had been narrowed down to a point uh, that sort of created a difference. And you were either a feminist and you were a woman if you were a feminist generally. Um, and so you were concerned with a very narrow set of, uh, of things. Uh, and then everything else was sort of seen as something different that somehow you weren't, you weren't supposed to focus on. So mass incarceration yeah. uh, and all of the, the bigger, broader uh, social injustices. And, and, and so it was a very simple point, and, and it was one that I, it was nice to hear someone make so clearly. Yeah, and the idea that feminism spends its time often in in a, in these sort of taken from magazine type books, which exactly. are how feminist is makeup or how feminist is girls by Lena, Lena Durham, Dunham. Dunham, rather than saying how feminist is poverty or how feminist is you know it, it's like you say it's it's focusing on these weird small things and letting the big ones slide. Exactly. By. So one of her one of her most interesting points, I think, was how. Um, so Charlotte was was talking about um, white feminism or neoliberal feminism, as it's called. So that would be your Hillary Clinton kind of feminism, where they believe that it's just tweaks that are needed that need to be made to the status quo, rather than radical radical reforms. And so the point that they often come down to is they say about how you know sex work is terrible because it's exploitative, but what they're then failing to do is scaling that up, or rather scaling it out. Lots of different types of work are exploitative. Why are we not focusing on that? It's a really all being in it together. It's a really, it's a great point. It's a really interesting. Um, she's a very interesting person, I think. Clive Stafford Smith. Well, that was just astounding because it was something that I don't think either of us understood the 
extent of no. the idea of these kill lists and Terror Tuesdays uh, that are held at the White House and, and even in stranger and in Britain. Yes, so NATO have them, the CIA have them. Um, France and, had them, and France, and obviously, then it extends into the darker parts of the world, Russia, and well, not that not that they're probably any darker than us, um, but yes, these things go on. Uh, they they're, they're assassination lists, um, and at the White House on Terror Tuesdays, they have PowerPoint presentations, which just makes it that bit more sinister because it's sort of trying to render it clinical and, yeah. and, and, and normal like, and a, business. Normal, like yeah. a business yeah presentation there was a big scandal in britain or not even a big scandal but it was a front page of the mail for two days in a row Do you remember the new defense secretary said he thinks that a jihadi returning back a mm. dead jihad you know they should just be killed yeah uh, and they're no use to us and it was the mail splashed it and then they splashed the sort of outraged liberal reaction mm. and it made me think of this piece and this interview and in, in Clive because the implication was it doesn't happen very much and this might be a new policy development that this new Gavin Williamson the new defence secretary is talking about and of course the thing that Clive Stafford Smith told us was this happens anyway this is not a scandal in the sense of it's not new it's mm. just been going on and it went on under Obama as well mm. it wasn't a Trump thing it was an, exactly. it, it was and it was because because Obama had said that he was going to close Guantanamo Bay he then needed to find some way of making people think that he was tough on this. Yeah. And so what you do is, and and why the reason it's so interesting for Clive to be talking about it is what he's basically doing is following to its logical conclusion the notion of of beyond reasonable doubt that you can find someone guilty beyond yeah to a degree beyond reasonable doubt uh, and then act on that. And, and in uh, this case, they just, they don't. And yeah, well, they it? just kill without trial. And finally, 2017, the year of the anniversary of Jane Austen. We got Claire Harmon in to talk about our favourite Austin books. Before we get to the dog, I mean, I don't, highlight don't, of the year, yeah, highlight of Cultural the year, highlight of the year for indeed everyone who listened to it, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but it was nice to talk about Jane Austen at, with someone who was just utterly enthusiastic and knowledgeable about her. Absolutely. I suppose that, that was the thing I, I took from from that. And I still believe Pride and Prejudice is the best. Well, I was thinking novel. about this because I already can't remember what order I listed them in and I think it's just because it will change every week. If you ask me next week I'll probably give you a different running order. Really? Yeah. You, you, Although I think Sense and Sensibility will always be down at the bottom for me. Yeah. I found that one just a bit Emma will be like that damp. For, for, for me. Mansfield Park, I'm, yeah. Persuasion was up there. <laughs> I tell everyone uh, that Persuasion is the one to say if you want to be a sophisticate and yeah. you want to look like you're, you've got Austin chops Yeah. You should say persuasion. And you should also talk about, what's the name of the dog in the period cost? Wishbone. Wishbone, the time-travelling Jack Russell. And if that doesn't whet your appetite, I don't know what is. So that's it. This is what you're going to listen to. It's been a lovely year for us on the podcast. Our figures have increased by a factor of about five. We've had the joy of speaking to some really brilliant people, haven't we? And this is a representative, I think, example of them. Yes. Enjoy it now. First then to modern France, itself a culture, as with so many in the Western world, in a state of flux. Sadir Hazarasin kicks off his review of Emmanuel Macron's Révolution with this sober prognostication. These are melancholy times for the French political establishment. This is certainly true for the sort of political heavyweights who we may have expected to be fighting it out for the presidency. 
Alain Juppé, the Republican bruiser, has departed the field. Nicolas Sarkozy, that always unlikely Lazarus, has failed to stage a resurrection. François Fillon remains mired in allegations of corruption that has recently led to him being prosecuted. He inevitably blames the media. And Manuel Valls, the socialist former prime minister, remembered for his controversial, though entirely accurate, remark that France will have to live with terrorism, is also no longer a candidate. So who's left to do battle with right-wing populist and supposed beneficiary of the Trump-Farage effect, Marine Le Pen? Well, the answer may be Emmanuel Macron, an unlikely figure in some ways, but one perhaps fitting the spirit of the age. He is both quintessentially French... He has married the schoolteacher with whom he had an affair as a teenager. He's a philosopher who preaches transcendentalism. But he's also an agitator against the political establishments, against the status quo. Sudhir Hazarasingh is an apt guide to the man and his thought and joins Thea and me in the studio now. Sidir, before we get to Macron, perhaps you might survey for us the current French political field. Is there anybody left other than Macron to face Le Pen? Well, Stig, the only realistic alternative to Macron, who isn't Marine Le Pen, is François Fillon, um, because he is he, he will remain the candidate of the Republican Party, and they're the only ones who have a chance of winning on the second round. Um, but realistically, he, to an external observer, he's shipped well beneath the waterline, isn't he? I mean, it's been interesting over the last seven, eight days because there was a moment when it felt as though his entire campaign was unravelling. He lost his spokesman, he lost his treasurer, he lost his campaign manager, and it looked over last weekend that he might actually have to to stand down altogether. But he kind of dug in with the help of Nicolas Sarkozy, who has turned out to be a sort of mafioso figure in the shadows. So he kind of muscled in and brought in all his supporters around Fillon to kind of bolster him up. But he now faces charges, so does that not make it impossible for him to continue, or can he just continue with that sort of shadow hanging over him. He will continue because it, I don't think anything anything further is going to happen uh, in terms of the, the juridical process between now and the election. So he'll be able to continue to campaign. Uh, he'll, he'll continue to say, as he's been saying all along, that there's some kind of dastardly conspiracy against him and that it's not only the fault of the media, but it's the fault of François Hollande and it's the fault of... Uh, uh, I mean, he's trying to find various he other kind of conspirators. Well, he? He, he, yes, and that's the kind of very unfortunate position that he now finds himself in because he's the kind of mainstream candidate of uh, a kind of party of government who's standing on a platform which in this respect, namely the relationship with the judiciary, he's saying something which is no different from what Mein Le Pen is saying. So, Well, tell us about Macron then. Um, I want to hear about him as a writer and philosopher. Is, he, is it a good book? I mean, is it, is it well, because it was so rare that we see a sort of intellectual in modern politics. We were, we were talking about, you know, that Obama kind of is slightly set to one side, that there aren't that many literary politicians in Britain anymore. There used to be, and that's slightly gone away. Where, is it a good book? Is it a good, well-written thing? Well, I was very, very pleasantly surprised when I read it because I thought, oh, well, um, I should read this because he's, he's becoming a kind of important figure in the campaign. But I hadn't really expected it to be as good as it is. And what makes it a very good book is not only that he's telling his own story, but he's putting, placing himself in a kind of historical uh, perspective, which is a kind of French Republican perspective. 
So he, he presents himself uh, and he presents all his ideas as being part of a long French Republican tradition. And he kind of locates his, his message in that kind of Republican mainstream. So it's very wonderfully written, uh, lots of kind of literary and, and cultural allusions. He's a man of, he's a man of culture, and, and he really is, uh, unlike some of his predecessors who kind of tried to pretend and haven't always pulled it off. We remember when Nicolas Sarkozy confused uh, uh, Roland Barthes and Fabien Barthes, the French uh, goalkeeper. football goalkeeper. Um, or uh, uh, there was another meeting where Sarkozy talked about a writer called Stéphane Camus. Um, so things things can go wrong when politicians try to um, do do too much make believe. Something similar happened with Tony Blair when he pretended to be standing at the at the uh, a part of the Newcastle ground that didn't exist when he was a child. I, <laughs> yes. I, I seem to remember something similar. Exactly. But Macron really um, knows the stuff, is very comfortable in the world of culture. He gave a wonderful interview in the France Culture programme La Fabrique de l'Histoire uh, three, four days ago, where he talked about his conception of history, uh, the historians that he particularly appreciated. He plays the piano. Um, he's really a man who takes culture very seriously. And does that, does that sort of thing go down well in France with the French electorate? Absolutely. I mean, as opposed to sort of marking him out as being an elitist who benefited from a, you know, a great education. He went to sensational schools and all that, all that sort of thing. It doesn't sort of mark him out as someone that they should be suspicious of who doesn't understand what it's like he's, to struggle. He, he's very aware that there is this gap in France at the moment between the elites and people who feel that they're outside the elites. But where I think um, he's playing it very well is that he's emphasizing the importance of culture within the kind of Republican framework. So Republicanism has always been in France about education, about providing opportunity. And so he stresses the importance of education in that kind of Republican context. But the, but the world we live in now, it feels he'll have to do more than that because he'll have to take a, a stance, will he not, on anti-globalisation. He'll have to try to appeal to the 60% of French people who live in small towns and villages who despair of the urban elite, who potentially have strong views about Islam. It's it's all very well and good him saying, well, I believe in education. Is he going to have to be hardline in some sort of flag-waving respects in order to get a certain degree of popularity? Well, what's been very impressive about him so far is that he has steadfastly refused to do that, to uh, to triangulate on issues like, uh, like Islam, where most politicians feel they have to kind of pander to the kind of extreme view. He says very clearly that he thinks there is a kind of problem with a very small proportion of France's Islamic community, but it's a tiny minority. And the vast majority of France's Islamic community is well integrated in in French society. And and he's said that over and over again. So, for example, he doesn't want to take any further the discussions about banning the veil um, in public places. He thinks that's the kind of discussion which polarizes people unnecessarily. Um, it's a brave message. Yeah. Um, Will um, it work against Le Pen? I mean, he's very he's very subtle. So he realizes that there are there are sections of the electorate that he can't reach, uh, and he's not going to try and court them. And what he wants to do is to build a slightly heterogeneous coalition, uh, drawing from the centre, the centre-right and the centre-left. And it seems, I mean, if opinion polls are anything to go by, it seems as though it's paying off, right? One of the really interesting things that's happening just over the last week or so is how a lot of the heavyweights on the socialist side 
are coming over towards him. And they should have been supporting Benoit Hamon by that. And they've they've actually they've made a point of leaving. I mean, that's the end of Benoit, isn't it? Exactly. He's kind of going down. My guess is Hamon is going to end up with about 10, 11 percent of the vote. And, and Valls is supporting Macron as well, isn't he? Valls is silently supporting him. But all the all the popular heavyweights in the socialist government now, for example, there's the defence minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, who's been working with uh, Macron, but quietly, to prepare his kind of defence programme, which is going to be published this Saturday. But Le Drian hasn't publicly come out in favour of Macron, but it's an open secret. That that's, that, this is all part of the... I mean, in order, you say, to make Macron viable, his, his mission viable, there needs to be a huge political realignment of the framework that's around him. I mean, how... How likely is that? That's the kind of $6 million question. Yeah. Because once he's elected, he'll need a majority, a relatively stable majority in Parliament. Now, oh, and the, ele- the legislative elections followed only about a month after. A month afterwards. Now, he doesn't have a party, right? Mm. He has this wonderfully named En Marche, yeah. with the, the exclamation mark, yeah. uh, movement. And, um, a Donald Trump-style exclamation mark. <laughs> exactly. exactly. In capital letters. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it manages to get 100 seats, right? Let's be generous and give him 100 seats. He'll still need to find, you know, 300-plus uh, members of parliament to support him. And by winning from the centre, he would be, in some ways, denying an, a new orthodoxy that has risen up, which is that we're living in polarised times. And I remember when Trump, when uh, an advisor to Le Pen said, uh, their world is being destroyed, our world is being built. And, and you could build a narrative which took in Wilders in, in Holland, although that may not come to pass, but Trump and Brexit and the four million people who voted UKIP in this country. And you could construct a, a notion that there is the far left, there's the far right, and identity politics is back. That kind of soft Blairite centre, which the old orthodoxy was the way to control politics, was dead, and we're living in new polarised times. A victory for Macron, by the sounds of it, would be a victory for that kind of broad coalition f- from the centre. From the centre, but... Macron's basic view is that the old-fashioned division between left and right no longer tells us very much about political beliefs and political alignments, and that the real division now within the left and within the right are between those who believe in openness on the one hand and those who believe in a more closed society on the other. And you find advocates of both um, on the right and on the left. And what he wants to do is to build a coalition between the kind of open groups on the right and the open groups on mm. the left. So the centrist element of the Rep- of the Républicain and the Valls uh, part Tony Blair of the would Socialist like. Party. Yes. Tony Blair would like to do, people like Paddy Ashdown, the former Liberal leader, would like to. There's an argument that they in, in Britain there's a thing, you'd have to create a new party. Yes. I suppose he's done with uh, En Marche. He's, he's, he's effectively doing that. It feels that would not be possible within parliamentary democracy in Britain. Does it feel like this is a perfect... It's In a year's time, you could come back here and say, he wins the presidential election, he gets enough of this brand new party into the legislative structure to get his manifesto achieved. Does that feel like a plausible route? Well, I think we are, we're living in kind of experimental times in politics. You know, who would have thought somebody like Barack Obama would be elected? Who would have thought Donald Trump would be elected? <laughs> Electorates are experimenting, sometimes unfortunately, sometimes um, in, in kind of interesting ways. And I think what's been happening in France over the past 10-15 years is that people have tried out the sort of Sarkozy-type new politics and found it to be wanting. 
they've given the, the kind of traditional left a go with Hollande. So quite a lot of people now in France are thinking, well, let's try him. He couldn't be worse than um, the previous two guys that we've had. Well, well perhaps today you'd undertake to come back in a year's time <laughs> and survey what the French political scene looks like with all of this still to come. With great pleasure. Sudhir, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. To write about feminism has often meant writing against the grain, the structural skew towards masculine power structures, the panic response of many powerful men to notions of equality, mean that voices advocating women's rights are often muffled or ignored, but they are at least getting louder. Charlotte Shane, however, has reviewed books by Jill Filipovich, Laurie Penny, Camille Paglia and Rebecca Solnit and is stern in her judgment of their quality. Today's mainstream feminism, she says, is not nearly as rigorous, comprehensive or useful as the moment demands. We've narrowed the scope of public feminism to a pinprick, rehashing yet another Lena Dunham controversy when we should have been developing and promoting reforms that encompass systems of exploitation not defined by gender alone. Had Hillary Clinton become president, there could have been a sense of misplaced complacency. But with Trump, the issues around inequality are more pressing than ever. Who is leading the charge in response. Charlotte Shane joins Thea and me now. Hi, hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you too for having me. Um, you talk in the beginning of the piece about the high stakes around feminism in the current climate. Perhaps we might start there. Why are the stakes so high? What are the stakes at the moment? Well, as many others have pointed out, in the United States, at least after the election, there was a sense of tremendous alarm and panic but much of what Trump represents and what the Republican Party, in fact, represents, although they sometimes try to distance themselves from Trump, are these really horrific like human rights abuses, basically, that have been routine in the United States for quite a long time. But because of Trump's many other qualities, a lot of people finally sort of woke up to the larger state of things. And of course, he's also emboldened some of our worst <laughs> citizens to... Uh, up the up their games, um, you know, as with Charlottesville. So, do you, do, you, do you do you think? I mean, it's an interesting point that that has Trump allowed the problems within society to be better explored, or has he made them worse, or perhaps both of those things? Trump is a symptom. He he alone is not the problem. So, it would actually be a very superficial, albeit desirable, sort of band aid to say impeach him. Um, that that really doesn't address a lot of the other problems we're facing and I mean everyone should be facing as kind of like moral or ethical agents um, and I, some of the ones I list in the article are like you know our our prison industrial complex is, is so out of control um, that our incarceration rates are appalling and uh, this is something that does affect women um, women are absolutely incarcerated and they're it just throws their families into chaos um, women's rights conversations in the United States for a long time have centered very prominently on access to business opportunities, yeah. um, <laughs> CEO positions, and um, and also reproductive rights. However, even then, it's usually very, very limited, which it's almost always kind of centered around abortion, which I too feel very passionately about. So it's, I'm not dismissing that in any way. You refer to a sort of middle class feminism, which I think is really interesting. That, and I was reading a book by Renny Edo Lodge, which is about race, but she says in it that feminism will have won when we have ended poverty. Is the argument you're making that 
feminist, I suppose, targets are too small when there's so many larger targets available? Yeah, I've, I read Renny's book too, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Feminism has become at least mainstream feminism, which also goes by other names like white feminism, neoliberal feminism. Um, as people begin to kind of talk about its failings more, uh, has has kind of siloed itself in a way from these other uh, critiques of the larger systems of oppression at work. So, for instance, you get women who have no problem explaining why they think sex work is bad, which is that it's exploitative and, you know, that it's particularly demanding and that people do it out of desperation. Um, But they have a very hard time recognizing that that applies to many more forms of work and perhaps even all work. People are are coerced into doing it, usually. Not writing book reviews, obviously. That's something we want to do <laughs> just for our spirits. But um, but that there are many forms of work that people turn to out of desperation, etc. But a lot of the most prominent voices are not anti-capitalist. So they have a very hard time um, turning their observations into something a little larger. Uh, there was a book published by uh, an American, I think she's kind of an expat, actually. She might live in Germany, um, Jessica Crispin this year, called something like Why Why I Am No Longer a Feminist or Why I'm Not a Feminist. And that book was sort of very much a screed, but it voiced some of these same problems, which I think were, were already brewing well before the election. But I think that in the wake of the election, it's been brought to a head by, for instance, how many women are still kind of obsessed with Hillary Clinton, who is not a particularly inspiring figure for many other women, myself included, um, and is in fact very much like a neoliberal. You know, she's pretty comfortable with the prison industrial complex. She was happy to take money from bankers, you know, et cetera. Like she wasn't, she was certainly not a radical or progressive. Well, certainly the main criticism of all of these, and I'm thinking, I think especially of Jill Filipovich's book, uh, it comes down to accepting the status quo, admitting that it needs a little bit of tweaking. But in in her in Filipovich's book, for example, it comes down to asking for more regulation. Right, and I was honestly I was surprised by it when I got to that point, and it's, it feels a little rushed, kind of at the end of the book, where she's suddenly saying, you know, that daycare centers need more regulation and that food needs more regulation. I'm frankly, I, it's just it's a very strange book to me that that wants to talk about nutrition slash food slash sustenance in a feminist context, but I'm 99.9% sure never men- mentions Flint, Michigan, which has been without clean drinking water uh, for years now, literally years. This is the community that has no access to clean drinking water. And for her not even to bring that up and to kind of instead talk about how it's you know, bad that women feel like they need to diet. It's just it almost makes me want to pull my hair out where I'm like, I don't I don't believe you're you're that oblivious. So I don't understand why these connections aren't being made, maybe where this doesn't seem like something worth talking about. And is that because is that because these bo- books like this grow out of blogs and and social media? And, you know, it's called the H spot, which is possibly the worst title I've heard in about <laughs> since the last time I heard a terrible title, which is a lot. Which is quite frequent. Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, it, it just sounds like this is a sort of, it can easily be classed or seem to be classed as sort of extended Cosmo piece. which, mm, which it's rushed out and it, these, they tend to be slapdash and, and uh, the research doesn't, doesn't support what they want to say. It's, it's, a, it's a running strand throughout these, really. 
It, it is on, it is a little like being in some Twilight Zone episode where you're in a doctor's waiting room and you live there for the rest of your life and you have to read this one article that never ends from a woman's <laughs> magazine. It, I genuinely, I don't feel like I have the insight maybe to, to speak to the motivation of the author or even the publisher, but my suspicion is that it felt like here's something that will sell, not to be completely cynical, but it does seem like they thought maybe this will be something easy to sell. You know, people are interested in being happier, you know, so it almost passes as like a self-help book a little bit, I think, when people see happiness in a title. It is very much about just preaching to the converted. I mean, I suppose the other side of that question is who do they think that they're trying to convince? That is my reaction. I'm like, these are the, the softest balls that you could possibly throw that there's just there's no urgency behind them. There's barely even um, any real relevance behind them anymore, where it's just sort of like, how how can this still be something that you think demands all of our time to kind of focus on these really, these things that are almost insipid at this point, are certainly very well-tread. And both um, Laurie Penny's book and Jill Filipovic's book, and I think actually Camille Paglia's book as well, talk about Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, and there's nothing wrong with having like a common text that people return to in sight. And, you know, it's to Naomi Wolf's credit, frankly, that she wrote a book that has remained in people's minds for so long and like so powerfully. But I can't believe like, do we do we need to have these conversations about like women spending their time on on their makeup and how that's bad yeah. for the world or whatever? I mean, it's it feels so incredibly petty. And it does feel to me like it's a bit of the result of an internet participation where you score these easy points and you get a lot of people congratulating you or a lot yeah. of people saying like wow this is so powerful to me you know when you complain about the beauty industry or whatever and and then the person in question becomes sort of inflated with that sense of having accomplished something which yeah. comes across the most in in Laurie Penny's book where it feels like she really thinks she's on the front lines of something and it's uh, it's yeah. utterly baffling for me anyway to discern from that book what she's actually done and and there's no need for her to prove to me that she's like participating in the right ways but but there is maybe if you're going to keep bragging to the reader about how brave you are and how much of an important figure you are, that you back it up with something. I wanted to say what the title is, because it's the worst title I've heard since the H spot uh, <laughs> uh, around six minutes ago. It's called Bitch Doctrine, uh, and you call it juvenile grandstanding. Here's a quote that you say. Uh, this is Laurie Penny. I'm going to say it slowly and clearly so it doesn't get forgotten quite so fast. Young women today are brilliant. They are brilliant you did that brilliantly thank you I really really thank you I really felt that yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, the question you ask that follows in the piece you say what can this juvenile grandstanding possibly achieve does it win anyone over and, and that seems to me to be a, a fair point if you write to try and get retweets that's very different to writing to try and have a sustained argument at book length Absolutely. And it seems uh, at at best the people reading it will feel congratulated. You know, so if I agree with her, maybe I read it and I feel proud of myself. My concern at the moment is to not uh, deepen anyone's complacency because I feel like, no, we need all hands on deck right now. Like, I don't want to berate anyone, but I do want to encourage them to act in like concrete ways and think about things more deeply. And her book just does seem like like there's a, a smugness to it, a pervasive smugness. 
that really confuses me as well, because there doesn't seem to be anything particularly challenging or radical in the book. So I don't understand where that sense of self-satisfaction would come from. Do you think she um, might accuse you of not quite betraying the, the cause, maybe betraying the cause, but actually by, <laughs> by, by you criticising these books, you're just making it easy for men i suppose but anyone ignorantly to 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 dismiss the legitimate causes behind feminism you you know you shouldn't criticize people like this i'm not saying i think that i don't i i I applaud uh, sensible criticism like this but could could you could could someone accuse you of that do you think charlotte i'm sure they they have and will probably will continue to um (laughs) what's frustrating to me is that it seems obvious that that is Not that it would necessarily be untrue, but that there's actually some sexism behind that, which is that I have um, a friend who writes a lot of book reviews, and and he's a man, and he he doesn't hold himself back usually if he doesn't like a book. And I was talking with him about if he feels like he has, you know, enemies or that he's ever really, like, put his foot in it. And after our conversation, I was just like, you know, I don't think anyone would ever call him mean but me i'm sure plenty of people have and will call, call me mean which implies almost like a personal um that's exactly right yeah, yeah. right like some type of personal vendetta or whatever and it's like no i i don't wish these women ill like i just think they wrote bad books that, that people shouldn't spend their time reading and, and in fact if they are increasing people's sense of complacency or i don't know like preoccupying them with something that isn't actually that worthwhile like i Dangerous is too strong a word, but I, but I think that the net effect is negative, that, that we just need to step it up. So all of these women whose books are addressed in the essay have large platforms. You know, they have a lot of Twitter followers. They write regularly for big outlets. Particularly, so, particularly perhaps Camille Paglia. I mean, you, you start with, with her and then you move on to her. In some ways, I get a sense of greater disappointment with with her from you because she is an important figure in the way that the other two aren't, I think you'd probably argue. But she is important, but she doesn't really give you any solace either. I, I know, at tremendous risk to myself, I'm just going to say, I really like Camille Paglia. I can't help it. Like, I think her writing is really fun to read. I think she's so ridiculous sometimes that it's just sublime. Like, I, I, I really enjoy it. And she does say these inflammatory things that I think she believes sometimes, and other times I think she's saying just to get under people's skin. I mean, there is this funny uh, tension in the book where she gives an MIT speech, which I cite, where she says that her something like her objective is always to um, create the, the maximum amount of aggravation. And my then mission later is, My she... mission is to be absolutely as painful as possible in every yeah. situation. <laughs> right, which you can tell. There's nobody could read her and, and miss that aspect of it. But then later, she's doing an interview with somebody, and the woman, which is included in the same book, and the woman asks her, do you feel like you play devil's advocate? And she says something like, what a stupid thing to do. I would never waste my time doing that. <laughs> like, well, but she's, she's a career contrarian. And in, in, in that sense, I suppose she's quite an important antidote to the, the patting on back and mutual exclamation of, oh, right on, that the other writers might be giving each other. Yeah, and at least she really always goes for the grand she always wants sort of the biggest possible statement you know because of her own personal history she's always talking about like the the entire history of art the entire history of civilization and there is something refreshing about that after reading books by younger feminists that feel so hemmed in like the h-bot or bitch doctrine where it does feel like they kind of have these they're sort of looking through a microscope at things that don't require looking at through a microscope. Um, just, and- just funny, because we have to go in a second, but we you know we've we've possibly 
have depressed people by talking for, for 10 minutes about problems in, in feminist writing. Can you end by cheering us up on, by saying who writes well in this area? Who reads you and uh, who, who do you read and, and feel inspired by? Yes, I don't think we need to be depressed. I think that there's there are actually like more exciting feminist conversations happening now than there were probably a year ago. And just because perhaps the mainstream outlets and you know, the biggest publishers are not giving these women book deals or promoting their work. It doesn't mean it isn't there and that you can't track it down. Um, Sarah Jaffe is a journalist who writes a lot about um, economic inequality, labor rights, and her work is genius. And if you if you read her work and you are a feminist, you see how her feminism comes across in everything that she does because she is constantly centering these women who are powering the movements, constantly kind of giving those women the mic. So I always feel inspired um, by her work and Angela Davis, who I mentioned at the end of the article, is just this kind of like this constant beacon of integrity and intelligence. So there's plenty of valuable writing. You might just have to dig a little more to get at it. Um, and, and Naomi Klein, too, I think is somebody who's speaking very intelligently to our circumstance right now. She is the celebrity, but I, when I read her work, I don't feel that she's centering herself. Charlotte, Shane, thank you very much indeed. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Clive Stafford Smith begins his lead essay in the TLS this week thus... Few people are aware that every week the White House indulges in Terror Tuesday, where the US president personally approves people for death without any legal process at all. This is not new, and it's not an excrescence of the Trump administration. As Clive notes, it was adopted in 2010 by Barack Obama, the constitutional lawyer turned president. 
The history of state-sponsored assassination, though, is not an especially lengthy one. Indeed, our modern barbarism may even outstrip the violent inclinations of our forebears. The Romans were not especially fond of the extrajudicial killing of opposing generals, for example, not least because, as Clive says, they possessed the most powerful army in the world and stood to benefit from a structure that delegitimized subterfuge. More recently, Thomas Jefferson noted that assassination, poison, perjury, all of these were legitimate principles in the Dark Ages, which intervened between ancient and modern civilizations, but exploded and are held in just horror in the 18th century. It was held in horror for most of the 20th century too. Adolf Hitler, in many ways the poster child for legitimate extrajudicial killing, was never the target for a UK-executed hit, despite the evident benefit, perhaps, of removing him from this mortal coil. The war on terror, as in so many other cases, has changed the rules of the game, the argument being that drone strikes on our individual enemies are part of a necessary and fine-tuned project that decapitates the worst terrorists against us. Except it isn't fine-tuned and it very often doesn't decapitate. For each person the US has targeted, reports Clive, an average of nine children have been killed. To date, the CIA has killed 76 children and 29 adults in pursuit of bin Laden's successor Ayman Zwahiri, yet he remains alive. And the moral certainty around kill lists is actually spreading and growing. Clive has diagnosed a modern epidemic of them. NATO operates a kill list. President Assad of Syria has one. Russia has one. And we've seen bloodshed on British streets as a result. Even Europe's favourite cuddly centrist, Emmanuel Macron, has been bequeathed the kill list by his predecessor. So how have we got here? Why have we got here? And where do we go from here are all reasonable questions. And we have the very reasonable Clive Stafford-Smith to answer them. Clive, thank you so much for coming in. I've never been accused of being reasonable. Well, I'm, take gonna, I'm going to accuse you now for accusing of being a do-good and reasonable. And we're only about five minutes into this. Uh, why don't we start with Terror Tuesdays, actually? Uh, how did they come about and who gets on and off the list and how does it work? Well, I think the first thing that I find intriguing about that, and I'm not sure what I should be more shocked about, whether it's the fact they do it or the fact that they thought it was good PR to say they do it. Yeah. And it's intriguing how people do this. You think of uh, Theresa May's dementia tax. You know, who thought that was a good idea to say it publicly? So I found particularly shocking in uh, 2010 that the Obama administration leaked to the media that they were having these Terror Tuesdays. And they did that in an effort to seem tough on terrorism because Obama had said, look, and we're not going to have Guantanamo anymore. We weren't very good at getting rid of it's that. It's still but there, isn't it? It's still there. Um, but he also said we're not going to torture people anymore. So then people said, well, what are you going to do about these bad guys? And so someone put this idea of just assassinating them in his mind. And then they boast about it. And the way they boast about it is about, you know, talking about this PowerPoint presentation where the CIA director comes in and says, you know, here's a picture of a guy with a beard. Who, um, who we should kill. And just like, you know, Roman emperor, he puts his thumb up and thumb down. And So what are we more horrified by? The fact that that's happening or the fact they think it's cool to say it's happening? Uh, you know, that's that's something that I find deeply disturbing. And what's the burden of proof there? What, what do you need to say? For what, is, what level does the CIA have to get to before saying this is definitely a bad guy uh, who is so bad that he, he requires 
offing before he gets to do anything worse. Well, of course, that's a big issue. And, you know, when you think about sentencing someone to death through a legal trial, you know, I quite often do a little experiment with judges about what they think reasonable doubt means. You know, how sure do you have to be? And my, my batting average with judges, both in Britain and America, at the moment is an average of 83% sure before they're sure beyond a reasonable doubt. And when, when you reduce that to, to pure facts, that means they're aiming to get it wrong one time in six. And as Robin Hood would tell you, if you aim low, you miss. And also, to put it in perspective, with six million people in America in the judicial system, that means you're aiming to have a million innocent people um, banged up in prison. And that's just horrifying to me. So that's the judicial process. Now, when you're dealing with the death penalty without a fair trial, or without a semblance of a fair trial, you know, you've got much bigger problems. And in a way, I suppose the statistical study of that is Guantanamo Bay, where we took 779 people, we stuck them in Guantanamo, we had years of interrogating them and trying to prove they were bad dudes. And so far, we've exonerated 738 of them, um, saying that actually, you know, they really weren't bad dudes. So, you know, this is just horrifying that if you toss a coin, you are so much more likely to get the right answer. Now, it is clear they'll probably get some of the guys we really hate, but my experience so far is they're just shockingly bad at it. And isn't isn't part of the problem that the the definition of of terrorism and being a terrorist has become so much looser now? Well, it is interesting to me. Um, you know, I was approached by someone who was um, at one point in MI6 at one time um, in a pub. Uh, for a conversation. And that's great. I was really pleased by that. because, And I said, look, can I please come to MI6? I'd love to talk to you guys. You know, and even if you don't want to talk to me, I'd like to talk to you. Because one of the problems, and this is true, I think, of prosecutors, as it's true of many intelligence folk, is they never actually get to meet the people I get to meet. And it's true that I don't get to meet some of the people they get to meet. And indeed, I don't get to meet them half the time, which is a great tragedy, I think. But what that means is you end up judging people without ever having met them. And it's always been interesting to me that in a court of law, a jury is required to judge you without ever talking to you. And I don't know about you guys, about how good you feel you are at judging people and whether after having a conversation with them, you're bad, Stig, because you've said I'm a reasonable, yeah, yeah. do good or you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. you know, so you clearly are hopeless. But That's true for the other reasons too. <laughs> But the idea that we are willing to judge people without ever meeting them, and now that we're willing to judge them at a distance without ever meeting them, yeah, again, sure, we're going to get some of them, right? I mean, Osama bin Laden goes on TV and said he, you know, says he wants to kill lots of people. That's not so hard. But then we get a huge number of them just dramatically wrong. Is your concern both about that the process of extrajudicial killing is being effectively wrong? I, don't, I don't like the, the, the phrase extrajudicial killing. Because we come up with these phrases that, that make you it sound neutralize more it. Okay, what do it, we call it? It's murder? assassination. Assass okay, it's assassination. assassination. If there was no collateral damage, if you just got bin Laden and you didn't get anyone else in the process and bin Laden is beyond reasonable doubt the person responsible for committing terrorist atrocities on a fairly large scale, if you just got him, would any moral objection fall away? It's not, it's not a necessarily just a moral objection, but this is the problem. Advocates of the death penalty say, well, you know, if you've 
got someone who absolutely 100% certain did it. There's a video of it. They, you know, they're doing all of this. They've confessed 75 ways to Sunday. They've got DNA evidence. You've got everything. You know, if you have that, would you have an objection? Well, you know, if we have a structure of the world where there's no human fallibility and everything's 100% certain, then we're not in this world. And so you just can't have that as a hypothesis. But, but there's another way of looking at it too, which is ultimately does that work does that make the world a safer place and you know by and large when we decide to assassinate people just as you know you have the same debate over torture you know if i'm sure that you've got a ticking time bomb in the middle of london and we want to stop that would i torture you the problem when you start getting into torture is you've just thrown away all your values and so you're then tarred as a hypocrite and you immediately make other people think you're a hypocrite and you immediately under, undermine the very principles you stand for. So I think these things don't work practically and they certainly don't exist in the uniquely une- non-existent world that you're talking about where we're 100% sure of everything. And quite, quite apart from the fact that as you know, far back as the early 1600s, people were already saying that well, you take out the head guy and all you do is create a dangerous power vacuum. I can't help but feel like there's something specifically kind of highly individuated celebrity culture about this idea that if you take out one guy, Osama bin Laden, everything else will be fine. I think the lessons of history are that that's nonsense, of course. And, you know, you look at the, the one assassination that Britain was theoretically involved in in World War II, which was, um, you know, of, of Heydrich, who was a lunatic Nazi who loved the final solution and all the rest of it. Now, yeah, he wasn't a nice guy. There were lots of people in the Nazi party who were not nice guys. But when he was assassinated, what the Germans did in response was they wiped out a whole village of Lidice. They killed everyone in the village. They flattened the whole place. They deported to extermination camps 13,000 people. They replaced um, him, you know, the dead guy with someone just as bad. And so did that do anything good? I think the answer is no. But if you take that, I suppose an, an argument would be you could make the argument, therefore you shouldn't even bomb IS as a military target. We're talking about something different with assassination. We're talking about targeted, saying you are worthy of death as a named individual without due process. Would you extend that argument to a more indiscriminate bombing campaign as well? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there are these rules, and we develop fairly irrational rules in warfare. Um, So, for example, you can't use dum-dum bullets, you know, the hollow-point bullets, because they explode in you and kill you really effectively. And, you know, you can't use poison gas. Why can't you use poison gas? Because we had a bad experience of it in World War One. It was already banned by that. What's fascinating is the the, the Geneva Mm. Convention before that said don't use poison gas, and literally two years later, everybody used it. Well, you know, what we're doing with these things, which is a bit irrational in the context of the United States and the Soviet Union threatening to destroy the entire world with uh, nuclear weapons, um, is we're trying to civilize a very uncivilized process of war. Now, I have problems with war. You know, you can add to your slurs against my character, Stig, the yeah, fact that I come awfully good, close to... Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I had a chat with the head teacher of my little boy's primary school who was a commander in the British Navy for his whole career before he took on... It's an interesting career. Eight year. Yeah, it was. He was a great teacher because it allowed his sort of being a commander to come in, but also the slight madness of a primary school teacher. But I was talking to him in the pub about wars. What wars would you have fought in and since World War II? What do you think it was worth fighting in? 
And I always appreciate hearing people who are sent to fight those wars rather than armchair warriors. And it was very interesting that he thought that they were all pointless and none of them needed to happen and we could have resolved everything without um, bloodshed. And I think he's right. Um, so I, I wish that politicians who send people to war had to go themselves, because I think we'd have a whole different attitude to it. Um, NATO operates a list. Explain how that works and what names that they, they use. I, I don't know how many people are listening to this, because when I read your piece and we first talked about it, I didn't really know the extent to which this was just normalised and there is this, this extrajudicial, which is a word you don't like to use, but there was this kill list, there's this assassination list, and it's operated by seemingly everyone in, in the Western world. Well, um, I'm just looking in the article because I want to make sure I get the names yeah. right because they're just so unbelievably offensive. Unbel yeah. But NATO has a list on the AFPAC border and it's called JPEL and that's the Joint Prioritized Effects List. And it's a list, I have a copy of one of its iterations which has 669 people on it. And there are lots of things that are really disturbing about that. Number one, you, know, you just think that this is meant to be some clinical, technical thing where everyone's got this um, tremendous goal to make the world a better place. So each of the targets has a code name, and I just love some of the targets. Uh, JPEL Objective 58, a letter, is a homage to the Hungarian porn star Letter Ocean. And then they have Camilla, spelled with a K, who's a homage to Camilla Camilla, who's a Russian porn star, one of the targets they call Altavira, which is a contraceptive pill. And you just think, these guys are sitting around coming up with targets of people they want to assassinate, and they're doing that. And I've got to say, I lose a lot of faith in the yeah. sort of objective thing. But what really bothered me about JPEL is the Brits were involved deeply in it. And there's a leaked document where the Americans say in it, the Brits were howling to include drug dealers on it. Yeah. And um, that's very disturbing. And they did in the end. You know, when the DEA worked out that they needed to get in on the act, that's the Drug Enforcement Agency, they did include at least 43 drug uh, traffickers on the JPL list on the theory that's on another of their little PowerPoints that says that there is a UN document that says that drugs are the, the financial foundation of the Taliban. Well, they cite this UN document, and I look it up, obviously, and it turns out it's an American document which says exactly the opposite, that in fact our drugs have very little to do with it and they have much more to do with corruption in the Afghan government. And on the basis of all this, the Brits get involved in assassinating drug dealers. Something which you could argue, you've said this in a previous piece for us, where there's a broad spectrum of offensive things like drug dealing or drugs generally, sodomy, blasphemy, which run from not being a crime at all to being punishable by death. You can make mm. a very strong case that taking drugs certainly shouldn't be a criminal offence and therefore you can move back towards drug dealing. And yet we now live in a world where our government is demanding without trial that people involved in the industry of drugs should be executed. Well, what is ultimately hypocritical about that is our government is vehemently publicly opposed to the death penalty for a drug dealer with a trial, um, and yet we're involved in assassinating him without a trial. And, I, you know, that's just silly. But that, I mean, that, this all sort of touches on, on one of the even more worrying aspects of all of this, which is the copycat effect and the kind of the wholesale lifting of wording from uh, US laws or UK laws or whatever, and their transplantation into Russian law and Ethiopian law. Can you give us a sense of how that has worked? Because in, in the war on drugs, for example, in, in inverted commas, in the Philippines, that's a huge development. 
well, and one is, that we're mm, sort of to blame for. Well, uh, you know, who knows? I think we certainly help promote it. And so in the Philippines, President Duterte comes to power and someone, you know, he has this whole thing about killing not just drug dealers, but drug addicts. And, you know, he says that vigilante groups should go out and do it. And he says that he personally has been involved in it. And this is a president saying that he's been involved in murder. I mean, you, you think about what they tried to impeach um, President Clinton for, which was, I think, lying about the word is. And here, this guy has a very high approval rating for that. And someone said he was like Adolf Hitler doing this. And he, his response was, well, Hitler killed three million Jews. Why can't I kill three million drug addicts? You know, first you think, what happened to the other three million Jews who Hitler killed? But once you get past his factual inaccuracy, the idea that he's advocating that and that they have assassinated, uh, I think it's now 8,000 people right. in the Philippines in the last year since he became president. And Trump has yeah. gone on the record to praise it. And indeed, we, Britain, Philip Hammond was uh, seen in the Philippines. I think it was Philip Hammond, it might have been Liam Fox, was there saying we have shared values with the Philippines, this is a man who compares himself to Adolf Hitler and is proudly talking about killing people. Do you know, I'm not sure what's worse, though. Trump saying, you're a fine man, come to the White House, we'll have a dinner where presumably we'll have a PowerPoint discussion of who to murder. Or Obama saying this extrajudicial killing, the word he used, not me, um, you know, this is really offensive. When Duterte turns around and says, wait a minute, you're the guys who were doing it. You know, I think it's Obama who actually undermined our state in the world and our ability to be critical. And well, it's, it's all pretty clear from, from what we've said that this is sort of spiralling and, and mm. you, you, just, you, you talk about it in terms of um, an epidemic of, of these kill lists. So what, how do we rein it in? What do we do? <laughs> well, it, it's like every mad thing that um, that the US government, followed by the British government, followed by a bunch of other people do. Um, first, you don't pay attention to people like Theresa May, who says that human rights just need to be jettisoned. Uh, human rights are actually rather important. And, um, I, and it should make this illegal, though. Certainly by the, the, the European Convention on Human Rights, Right to Life, Article 2. Yeah, well, of course it's illegal. The question is who you can get to say it's illegal. So we have several things. First, we've got to tell people about it. And that's where if you at the TLS don't do your job and tell everyone, then, you know, I'll put you on my kill It's the lead piece. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, well, you, thank well, you. That's quite something. I'm not sure we can get the cover now. I'm not sure we, I mean... It's well, not very it, subtle. It's in our, own, in our own small way, Clive. I'm not sure we can give it any more of a All right, a, a I'm run. taking you off my kill list. Thank God. That. <laughs> that's it. So we've got to let people know this is happening because I think, you know, the lead line is that people don't know this is happening. And so the first thing is always to tell them. And it's, it was in Guantanamo. That was the same thing. You know, people didn't know what was going on with rendition people didn't know what was going on with, with drone killing and so forth. So we have to get the message out. But then we got to go after the people doing it. And I'm proud to say that I initiated the first lawsuit against President Trump, apart from all the ones by women who had been molested <laughs> by him, after he became president, as we were sitting there watching uh, his inauguration and the moment he had finished, press the, the go button to send the uh, initial letter. So we sued him on behalf of two journalists who we know are on the kill list because that's, you know, some of us think journalists should be eliminated at every possible uh, point. But actually, I think they probably shouldn't, no matter what they say. And More do-gooding <laughs> from you there. It's becoming a theme. But there are two journalists, one of whom is uh, Ahmed Zaidan, with, who is the Islamabad station chief for Al Jazeera. And he managed to get himself on top of the list in that part of Asia 
of the British of the American kill list due to his social media that they sucked the data out of his phone and discovered he kept interviewing people like um, you know Bin Laden and others and so that's what got him his position now I asked you guys as journalists if you had the chance to interview Bin Laden when he was alive would you have taken it if you were sure that yeah of course of course you would and so that's how he ends up and then there's an American journalist um, who's in Syria who's a former um, comedian stand-up comedian from New York who's going around interviewing Al Nusra and trying to put all different sides except he hates ISIS of the Syrian debacle uh, because he wants to do war journalism and he's been targeted three three times himself Bilal has so we sued on their behalf with a sort of simple request of the US government which is will you just tell us that you're not trying to murder me and they responded just a couple of weeks ago saying uh, no we won't and we have every right to murder you if we want to and no judge no judge is in a position to judge whether we should do that because we're the best ones to decide whether someone should be assassinated and I mean you know that's mad so we'll litigate that we may or may not win where do you litigate it? in Washington D.C. Um, and we'll see and I bet you know we'll have a tough time in the lower courts because district court judges don't like to create big rules but I bet just like with Guantanamo that in the end, a court will say, oh, you know, we just shouldn't be doing that. But you can't take Americans to the, the, the International Court of Human Rights in the Hague, can you? Because they're not signatories to No, them. but actually, you know, one thing the, the US has, which Britain doesn't have, is a constitution. And that applies, it doesn't apply to you people, because you are what we call foreigners. But on the other hand, it applies to me as an American, and fortunately to Bilal as American. And, you know, I... Don't get me wrong. I think that's reprehensible. I think that even you guys should have legal rights. But the, um, that, that was very generous <laughs> of me. But, but, you know, at some point they're going to have to answer to the fact that the U.S. government is trying to assassinate an American citizen. And I think that's a tough one. Just finally, we have to leave it. But uh, I just want to tell briefly the story of uh, you've also had access to Assad's mm. kill list, which was given to you by... Brexit superhero David Davis uh, before he became a Brexit superhero potentially. You know, I'm fond of David. I wish he'd give up his uh, his role as Brexit minister and just spend his time doing the really good things he does on uh, on human rights. Um, and he went to Damascus and met with Assad and it was all part of a mission from some MPs to try and sort out some sort of peace process. And I think Assad, you know, I wasn't there, but my uh, sense from talking to David and so forth is that Assad knew that we have a bunch of lists that, of Muslims we want to kill and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he thought that by handing over a disc to a conservative MP with his list of bad guys with beards who he wants to kill somehow that would make him our friend and you know to David's credit he's aghast at that and gave me a copy of it and you've seen it I, well, I've got it and we've translated it and some of the people on it I mean you just you gotta love it there's a guy called Eric Haroon who was a former American soldier and uh, he was on the list and Assad said he was a really bad dude with al-Nusra extremist Muslim and said that they'd killed him and so uh, Eric tweets from Istanbul saying basically rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. I'm chilling in Istanbul 
with a martini. And, you know, that proves two things. One is he wasn't dead at that point, but two is he ain't no extremist Muslim if he's boozing away in Istanbul. And so it's just one of many examples of the madness of this whole thing. And so is your, sorry, is your duty then now to, to inform everyone who's on their list? Has that list been published somewhere for, for people to see? And, and What we're going to do is we're going to, at Reprieve, we're going to have a project where we publish all the lists. And some we have actual copies of, some we have to reconstruct by the obvious fact that the Russians keep assassinating people. Um, but we're going to publish them and, yeah, just carry on doing that until we get the message out. And just finally, what can people do listening to this or reading the paper uh, this week? Well, what can people do to, to support this? Is it donate to Reprieve? Is it to write to their MP? Is it, what steps can be taken? Well, we are a charity at Reprieve and it's expensive business, so we're always grateful for that. But also, yeah, I think people who are MPs in Britain need to see that this is yet another of these mad policies the US came up with that we just shouldn't have anything to do with. And then, you know, authors need to write stuff about it. TV people need to make documentaries about it. Artists need to do artwork about it. Just uh, have that discourse so that we can get back to 1759 when assassination was illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Take us back to the 18th century. Love 1759. Clive (laughs) Stubbersmith, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Jane Austen was born in 1775 in a small village in Hampshire, the seventh of eight children. She belongs to that small pantheon of great writers who remain both effortlessly fresh and engaging while still endlessly subject to pastiche. There are zombie versions of Austen novels. There are, as Devony Lozer informed us on this podcast in January, pornographic versions of her novels. Indeed, it's hard to conceive of another great author not Dickens, not Eliot, not James, capable of sustaining such a broad response. What's the reason for it? Or part, it must be the quality of the writing, the acuity of the vision, the universality of the themes, money, pride, love, disappointment, expectation, the confinement of our chance existence. There's also the fact that the brilliance of her output was never allowed to be obscured, as in the case of so many writers, by an indulgent late period or an experimental middle phase. No, she wrote six beautiful, important novels published in a period of seven years. The last, Persuasion, in 1818, arguably even better than the first, Sense and Sensibility, in 1811. There are no duds, no excrescences, no failures. Famously, the Oxford philosopher Gilbert Ryle was once asked whether he ever read novels. Yes, he asserted, all six every year. His reaction is representative of many. Austin will always have her fervent votaries, her impassioned supporters. Ask your acquaintances to rank the six novels in order of preference and you'll guarantee yourself a pleasing half hour of robust fireside debate, just as if you were happily ensconced at Pemberley or Hartfield. We may try that in this podcast. We're all Jainites now, notes Ian Sansom in the TLS this week, and if you're not, look out. To commemorate the bicentennial of her death, we have devoted a paper, book and this podcast to consider what is it that makes Austen so special and so alive in the modern world. Well, to help us do that, we're delighted to welcome writer and critic Claire Harmon. Claire, thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure. Let's talk about the afterlife of Jane Austen, because she wrote a very good book called Jane's Fame, How Jane Austen Conquered the World. Um, I mean, I don't want you to, to summarise your entire, <laughs> entire book, but how did she do that and, and, and why? And I suppose when? When was the moment that, that Jane Austen went from being 
a novelist of interest to people to being a dominant cultural figure? Yes, well, it, that's, a, that's a very good question. I don't know that I could answer it very easily, but uh, when I was thinking about writing that book and I started to notice where Austinishness was all around one every day, it was just astonishing. You know, kind of tune into it, and it's absolutely in the most unusual places, uh, you know, including around the back of a football goal of an advert for electronics. There was a, a conference that was talking about extreme pornography that was, you know, quoting from Emma, all sorts of different things. Uh, you know, Dick Cheney was, was talking about Jane Austen. Just almost every area of life you could get an Austen reference in, and people, of course, love the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice. Journalists love it. Oh. And they we endlessly... Have a ru- we have a rule here, actually. My- Michael, who's not here... I, I, I did an introduction to this book and I deliberately wrote a pastiche of the first sentence just to annoy Michael because he, he does a lot of art, he gets a lot of pieces about Austin in and, and the number of reviewers who start with It's a Truth oh, Universally acknowledged. And, but it's, it's sort of, is it almost Shakespearean? I mean, there's maybe Dickens, maybe, but I think less so with Dickens. I'm not sure Dickens pervades the consciousness in the exactly, way. Exactly, because Dickens, we have Dickensianness, yeah. which is very recognisable. But Austin, um, it's. <sighs> I think it really took off, actually, after the 1995 films on TV. But it had been... I mean, obviously, she was very, very popular from the late 1870s onwards, I mean, after the first biography, which which augmented the novels, which weren't that very well-known during the 19th century, generally. They were out of print for a decade or so after her death. And she slowly got some critical... um, noticed during the 19th century but really she was treated as a as a passe Georgian novelist. So the great Victorian novelists don't owe a debt to her really? Not really because uh, not that many of them had read her and people like Charlotte Bronte who very much objected to G.H. Lewis's uh, advocacy of Jane Austen um, read her to catch up with this stuff but she'd already objected to Austen on principle and she didn't like the, the, you know so actually Austen's legacy was strangely you know, um, end stopped at that point. And it really got um, much more activated around the whole idea of her life and how charming a person she'd been and how unobjectionable. And the novels, of course, then became, you know, there was the the cult of Divine Jane. That was a late Victorian cult. Again, uh, you know, rather um, fastidious people trying to characterise themselves culturally through Jane Austen. Uh, they saw her as somebody who represented gentility. Virtue signalling. We're talking about Victorian virtue, virtue signalling. Exactly. What a wonderful phrase that is. Where was it? Yeah. In, in the 1890s. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were virtue signalling. And people still do that, obviously. Yeah, um, indeed. And then she was one of the first English authors to be treated to scholarly editing in the you know early days of the 20th century. That, that, that in itself was quite an interesting time, wasn't it? Because... In the sort of 1920s, there there was the Chapman kind of scholarly authoritative version asking people to go back and and realise how important and accomplished these works were. At the same time as I think the Austen family were still in in charge of her literary legacy and they were sort of commercialising and and pushing a different version of Austen. So you had this bifurcation of... Yes, you did. And also when the letters were published, because it was a, a, a matter of, of dissent, that when her letters were published, people thought that was actually very inappropriate to publish the letters of a, of a woman who clearly had not intended any of those things to be read. You know, they were thought of as very personal documents. Also things like the Watsons, Sanderton, the Juvenilia. And the family did start to to publish these works and were criticised for it in many ways. But of course, if they destroyed them, that would have been terrible um 
but then the scholarly work on Austin um, was part of of her being an uh, easy cannon fodder. I mean, like yeah. you know, a literary cannon fodder. Uh, the discipline of English literature was just starting up. Um, did Leavis like her? I, I, I'm sure, um, I can't remember. I'm sure he probably did. It was, is, is she in the canon of the Leavis canon? You know, I can't remember. No, she's, I, she's very studied. I mean, the thing that I remember yeah. doing at university because she because she wrote six novels, yes, which are all easy to read. Mm. And in, she's very studyable, isn't she? She she's absolutely yes. opens up to to, to studying because they're they're sophisticated. They're, there's lots going on, but equally exactly. they're easy to read. And you can it's quite hard to read all of Dickens. Yes, it's very hard to read all of James. Yes, quite hard to read all of Elliot. Austin, you can kind of compartmentalize and say, I'll just read the six novels, and then you've read. Yeah. A major, is there a single major author that you can do that with other than Austin? Maybe not. Not really, no. Well, I suppose the Brontes Maybe. didn't write very many books. No. Um, but, yeah, Austin's... It doesn't feel as complete, does it? The, the oeuvre feels yeah. kind of complete for, for, for Austin, doesn't it? Yes, because I think she was doing this sort of major controlling exercise on them. And, and they are extremely um, lovable. And yeah. as well as readable and they, they're very translatable I mean the simplicity of the language means that they can also um, you know they travelled quite far Oh is she big in other parts of the world? Uh, she was translated into French very early on I mean sort of pirated into French and she was um, uh, in English pirated in America and then she had these strange uh, you know like James Fenimore Cooper basically nicked parts of, of, of Austin to write his own novel Precaution yeah. In 1821, no one and, would spot that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very exciting, does it? No, no it wasn't very exciting. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we got onto the uh, to the Mohawks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who did she influence then? I want to talk, finish on adaptations. But who did you know? Who read Jane Austen? Who, who do, you, do you see as the sort of the heirs to to, to Austen? Who did she? Well, influence? Catherine Mansfield and Virginia Woolf very much so, I think, because the, and also Woolf's writing on on Austen is very uh, astute. It's I lovely. Mean, yeah. I, we I, have I, a big piece in the book. We've got yes, by, it's, by, a, by. It's, a, it's a wonderful essay, uh, and so many of Woolf's essays absolutely nail something about a writer in a writerly way. I mean, she writes both critically and as a novelist, and so she appreciates all the sort of levels of uh, of, of skill and craft that go into the Austin uh, works. And also this, this creation of character, the keeping of people in play, which is, you know, um, very much is what people would love to be able to, to write. But um, I think the trouble with Austin is that people try to emulate the wittiness yeah. and it just falls horribly short, as with the very famous first sentence of Pride and Prejudice. It just sounds so tinny, doesn't it, it after does. a while? It does. And, and yet the manner of it, the, the manner that she herself is lampooning... Exactly uh, right, yeah. ...is what also persists along with appreciation of the lampoon. I mean, she's meant to be our big ironist, isn't she? She's meant to be the person who taught us that we are ironic as a nation and that we can glory in this and it's a great part of our culture and our, our heritage in literature. And yet you have things like the £10 note that's just coming out with, as many, many people have pointed out, an absurd quotation on it. From Caroline um, Bingley. From Caroline uh, Bingley, who... Terrible before she, again, Before she person. says that, terrible, wonderfully observed, terrible yeah. character, who just before she says, I declare there's no such pleasure as reading or whatever, um, has given a great yawn. And yeah. she's interrupted <laughs> yeah, yeah. Darcy and Elizabeth, who are the real readers, yep. and she's borrowed the second volume to thwart him. So she's completely... She's reading upside down almost, Yes, isn't exactly. She? <laughs> it's, it's a, it is the most ill-chosen quote. Yeah. And yet the Bank of England, having had this pointed out to them, they decided that didn't matter, actually. You think, hang on. It, mm. And yet this woman is being celebrated for her irony. Well, there's an irony in, in it all is. of this. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I thought Patrick O'Brien, I mean, I'm just reading Patrick O'Brien, who's the sort of mm. naval uh, historical fiction. That's true. He loves Jane Austen. Yes. And it's the same period. And you can just, I mean, it's very different because it's sort of 
slightly swashbuckling historical fiction, but there's there's something of the mm. pervading irony. Yeah, Forster was a great admirer of yeah. Jane Austen. I think there's quite a lot of of her in him. Um, Adaptations. You say that when you're feeling mm. low, you turn to an adaptation. We have in the paper this week, uh, inexplicably, we didn't review Clueless when it came out, the right. Alicia Silverstone version of yes. Emma set in an L.A. high school. So we've asked someone to review it again oh. <laughs> uh, for it. Because to me, that's I, I, I very clearly remember the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, yes. the TV one with the famous Darcy wet t-shirt competition yes, when he comes indeed. out of the lake. Who's it played by? Uh, Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Who is it played by? Know. Yes, yes. But you, you remember him emerging, glistening from, from the lake? Yes, um, I do. And that was... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite right, too. Um, so I'm going to say, Cliz, what, what do you think? What do you turn to when you want to, to watch a bit of Austin? Who's done it well? Well, Colin in the Lake has done it well, but of course it's not Austin. That's a, a scene that they put in. I know, yeah, indeed. So, yeah. so that's the least Austenian piece of, of, of TV. Um, I, I enjoyed Clueless when I first saw it, but I, I can't say it kind of has gripped, gripped me ever since. I really liked um, a biopic, uh, weirdly enough, called Miss Austin Regrets. It was on television about oh, yeah. 10 years ago. Um, and it had Olivia Williams in it. And what I liked about it was that the script was very closely based on Austen's letters, which are themselves one of my favourite texts. I love her letters, and I read those more often than I read the, the novels. Really? really? Um, and I think the letters repay endless attention, especially if you just take them one at a time. Don't just uh, read them as a block, but read them as actual sort of individual letters. And the scriptwriter of that biopic picked up on a lot of little things from the letters, which, which actually mainstream biographers haven't quite assimilated into the yeah. Austin story. The Austin, yeah. So, you know, the fact that she was um, drinking quite a bit at one point and there's a kind of slightly woozy scene in that when she's possibly speaking a little bit out of turn to That's Charles Hayden, the doctor. That's interesting. Also because um, there has been a gin brand sort of launched on the back of Jane right. Austen, so it, that makes it seem somehow more relevant, <laughs> yes. I suppose. But I was... Unaware of that. That's fantastic. There is, yeah. We we, we had it in the paper in January, didn't we? Yeah. Have you seen any good, good or bad? Um, Well, I would, I would obviously uh, say yes, clueless. And I'm going to now lower the tone massively. And it's not because is that possible to go further? Oh no, I'm going to go lower. Go on. So this isn't because I'm saying it's the most important adaptation or particularly very good, but it's what made me interested in Jane Austen when I was about ten, and it was a program put out by PBS in America called Wishbone. And it was, uh, the the main character was uh, Jack Russell. He lived in Texas. And he used to trot back through time and uh, take on the roles, yeah, yeah, take on the roles of, of leading characters in, in the classics of, of Western fiction. And so there was one, it was an episode called, no first, one saw this coming, called yeah. first Impressions, as in fur... Oh, first okay. impressions. The original title and of Pride and Prejudice. Yes, exactly. And he played Darcy. And actually, as far as kids' telly goes, and I don't watch any now, obviously, because yeah. I'm an adult, yeah, I do. it was very good. Well, yes, but you have a reason to. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> so, it's, so just to be absolutely clear, this uses the, the original title of Pride and Prejudice yes. and tells the story of Pride and Prejudice through a Texan dog. Yeah, t- a Texan talking Jack Russell. Have you not? How have you not seen this? You call yourself an Austin scholar, and then then, I don't know how I missed that one. It was Wishbone. Wishbone. I'm going to check that out. I think the tagline was something like 
a small dog with a l- massive literary imagination or something. Big slightly. vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> it's catchier yeah. than that. It's a truth university. <laughs> Any horrors that you've seen? Did you ever? Did you well, ever... I didn't see the zombie film. I'm oh, I, I, I started watching yeah. that. It's not quite as bad as as you think it's going to be. There's a little bit of archness that knows it knows what it's doing. Yes, but it was still. It, still it would need a whole, an awful lot of archness. Yeah, to it wasn't it. quite. Uh, but I did speak to the Jane Austen Society of North America in the week that that film came out, and a lot of them had seen it and they loved it. Yeah, I thought they'd be down on it like a ton of bricks, but um, actually not. And uh, but I did see the book, uh, the Seth Graham Brown's book. Oh yeah. Um, and the, I thought it was amazing as a phenomenon that you can take eighty-five percent of Austen's book put 15% of ultraviolet zombie mayhem of your own into it <laughs> and come up with a book that sells millions of copies, much more than Pride and Prejudice really? in any given period. I mean, yes, it, absolutely millions. Did that make you angry? Uh, no, it didn't make me angry because I don't feel I'm, I kind of, you know, have to <laughs> stand fight. up for the yeah. But it is, is astonishing that less Austin goes further. I mean, I think in terms of, of her fame and her recognisability, which is what Margaret Oliphant pinned down in the 1870s that Austin had this um, ability you know to 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 push people's buttons they didn't have to write her books but that she was a recognizable cultural figure um, and that I think the Seth Graham Brown phenomenon displays that perfectly you know you can have a bit less Austin goes even further Oh dear, that's well. On that, de- on that note. yeah, slightly, <laughs> it's a slightly depressing note. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for 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 coming in to discuss all things uh, Austin. So to cheer us up, this is a, a fantastic farm by Matt, our producer. He has discovered online, of course, Thea. It's Wishbone. Wishbone the talking dog. Wishbone the talking dog doing first impressions. <laughs> His version of. Pride and Prejudice, seen once by a young Thea Leonarduzzi in 1992. So to play us out, you're going to want to listen to this. Here it is, Wishbone, the talking dog. It is your turn to speak, Mr Darcy. I talk to the dance, and you ought to make some kind of remark about the size of the room. Or the number of couples. Your sister will dance with just about anybody, huh? I guess you prefer to criticise everyone. I have heard all about you. Well, don't believe everything you hear. That's, that's, proper, that's the genuine dialogue, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And that's the genuine jacket as well. Yeah. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 